0: see everybody this morning. If you've been with us for a while, we've been in a series in the Jacob narratives, basically looking at 10 chapters out of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and going through the life of Jacob, calling it Lessons of Faith and Grace. And so grab your Bibles. We're going to be in chapter 31 today. If you were here last week, then I said I'm going to preach really the same text two weeks in a row. So last week we looked started in chapter 30, the latter half went all the way through the end of chapter 31. Today we're gonna start in 31 and go all the way through uh, the end of this chapter, giving a little bit more, uh, just unpacking the story a little bit more there. So as you're turning, I wanna give one pastoral note Then I'm gonna pray and jump in. We got a lot of words in this chapter, 55 verses. And so instead of uh, reading it up front, we're gonna sort of like read it, roll it through, roll through it and I'll comment as we are are going on. Uh, I'm gonna pray as we dive into the scriptures today and I uh, encourage you to pray with me. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for not just uh, the beautiful weather we have outside. Thank you for the gathering of your church as we come together to uh, to worship, to glorify you, to uh, to read, and to be edified and challenged by your word. And so God, would you do that in our midst today? God, for some of us, these words are familiar. We've read this story for years, and uh, I pray that uh, for those who have read it and are familiar with it, that you would uh, speak something new, uh, speak something uh, challenging, but also change them uh, as you do by your Spirit. And for those who are hearing it for the very first time, God, I pray that it would be impactful for uh, their own lessons of faith and grace. God, visit us today by your Spirit, and uh, we pray that having left your presence, God, that we would know that we've, uh, uh, we've met the Lord today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So the story is that two boys were Um, I mean, they were young, but they liked to fish. And so there's this one special pond in this particular city, a small town. And the boys went to the man who owned the pond. The man happened to be very wealthy. Uh, He happened to be not the nicest man. And he was known to not want anyone to come on his property, particularly because this was not just a pond. It was a pond filled with the choicest trout that you could fill in a, in a body of water. And he was particular that he didn't want anybody but himself fishing. And so the boys, un, you know, un, un, unsupposedly just come to him and say, hey, would, would it be all right if we uh, fished in your pond? And so the, the man is sizing these two young boys up. They're barely teenagers. And he makes a judgment call looking at the boys and says, I mean, what harm could they do? I mean they, I mean, they aren't even old enough to fish, let alone catch one. And so, uh, for whatever reason, this man, with this special pond of fish that he would let no one else come near, decides to let these two boys fish in this pond. And so, one of the boys, as the man is walking away, uh, decides to ask him, so, is it all right if we keep everything that we catch? And uh, the man uh, smiled a little bit. Of, of course, he's thinking, I mean, what can these boys do? And he says, sure, keep everything that you catch. And he walks away smiling, um, thinking that these boys are going to tell the, the, you know all their friends that they went on the property, were able to fish, and he's not going to be the, the mean, old, wealthy guy in the town anymore. we going to get out that he actually did a benevolent act. And so these boys. Uh, did what you do when you're when you're a fisherman, all right? They got their gear together. They got their, their you know all the all the stuff that you're supposed to get. I'm not a fisherman, so I don't know. They got their <laughs> stuff together, right? All right. They baited their line. They cast the line out in the water, and I mean, as, as soon as that wa- that line hits the water, they start like pulling up trout, pulling it up. I mean, they caught almost all the trout that the man had in his pond. And they did what they knew to do as young, avid fishermen. They snuck away as deceitfully as they got on the property, taking all this man's price trout with them. We're in a text, obviously, that's not about fishing, but it is about uh, a wealthy, um, deceitful man who at some point gets what's coming to him because of the way that he's treated everyone else. And that man is Laban. And though that story isn't necessarily quite overlaid on top of our text today, it does highlight uh, the actions that come to Laban. He finally gets what he deserves. But more importantly, and I think we'll see this towards the end, it highlights the providence and the sovereignty of God and the story of redemption that he's writing in the likes of people like us who have, in many cases, sinful lives. And so a little bit, bit of background, if you haven't been here with us, uh, again, we're in Genesis 25 through 35, and we are in Genesis 31 today. And what we've recently learned is after 14 years of, of being in Haran, serving his father-in-law, Laban, Jacob decided that it was time to go. He had, he had been deceived into marrying a woman that he didn't want and served seven years, and then he married uh, the woman that he wanted. And basically it had um, done all that he was uh, told to do so that he could not only marry this woman, but he made Laban rich in the in the process. And so in Genesis 30, we learn that at this point, Jacob has 12 kids. He's got 11 sons. He's got one daughter, and he wakes up one morning after his son Joseph has been born. Joseph, of course, is not necessarily the son of promise, but he's the son born to his favorite wife, Rachel. And At that point, Jacob is just like, all right, so I know it's time to go. And for whatever reason, he comes to Laban, and after speaking with Laban, instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to leave, Laban is somehow able to convince him to stay for a few more years. In fact, he stays for six more years, six more years of, of working and laboring for a man that's deceived him at this point for 14 years. And As we're looking at what's happening, it it just seems that, um, I mean, we don't really know why Jacob decides to to stay, but as the story unpacks, we figure out that God is in it, that somehow in the purpose and plan of God, God does not intend for Jacob to leave Mesopotamia, Haran where he is, uh, after all these years, empty-handed. God has promised that he's going to not just protect and care for Jacob, but bless him, And part of that blessing had not happened yet other than the blessing of having kids. And so in those six years, uh, Jacob strikes a deal with Laban. He's going to keep all of the speckled and spotted goats, the black of the lambs, and with that he's able to breed them and... You know, We find out in the story that God blesses it. It's actually not a good deal, right? Because at this time in ancient Near East, most of the animals were monocolored. They were either black, gray, or white. You didn't find a lot of striped, spotted uh, animals of any sort. And so what Jacob was asking Laban to do in terms of a deal, of, of a wage, didn't make any sense. But we learn in the last uh, verse of chapter 30, thus the man increased greatly, the man Jacob increased gr- greatly, and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. And what the Bible is telling us right there is Jacob was a rich man. He had a lot of stuff, and it was uh, we can only attribute it to the God, that God blessed him. God increased him greatly. As we're unpacking chapter 31, there are at least four scenes. A lot of words, but about four scenes that we're going to reduce it to. And the first scene is the call of God. Look at verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what our father, uh, from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I'll be with you. So the, the Bible, go ahead. It, it just fast forwards six years. And at this point, it looks like... Um, I mean, it's time for Jacob to go again. In fact, God has visited him and told him it's time to go. Go back home to the land of your birth, the land where your, your parents currently are. And if we were to come up with a reason why Jacob is supposed to leave, the first thing that the text is telling us, it, it seems like the, the tension in his family is the, is the proximate cause. But again, as the story unfolds, it, we learned that it's, it's not just the tension in his family and the, the envy of his, his cousins. Really, it's the call of God. It's, it's almost as if Jacob is getting the same call that his grandfather Abraham got that said, Hey, d- do this. And if you do this, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. So the, the call of God was summoning Jacob to leave where he was and to go back home. There's two specific things that prompted Jacob to go home. The first is divine revelation. A few verses down in chapter 31, we learn that Jacob had a dream, that God came to him as an angel in a dream and showed him the, the whole deal about the spotted and the speckled and the mottled animals and what he was supposed to do in regards to them. But more importantly, this this angel of God, God coming to Jacob in a dream, reminded him of the, the blessing and the protection that was going to be afforded him, and uh, that he was, going to be, you know, he was going to be the inheritor of all the promise that he had given to Abraham. And with that, he was supposed to, uh, obviously, go back to the land of his fathers. And so Jacob was told to, to, to go home. Here's the second thing, divine providence. And we're going to see, obviously, we see this, uh, we see this, uh, this theme, this is a mega theme of the Bible. It, it particularly comes up over and over again in the story of Jacob. And here's what we see, because there's, there's several providential factors that are that are coming up in in in, in this particular chapter in regards to, to, to Jacob. And the first is the envy of his cousins. Um, all of us in here are no strangers to family dysfunction. Perhaps you grew up like I grew up, where you had uh, cousins that were you know close to you, but they they were also um, they just like spark rivalries. You know, with you, they always were competing against you. Uh, my dad has a better job than your dad. Uh, our house is bigger than your house. Uh, look at look at look at our grass; it looks better than your grass. Or look at my grades in school. I go to a better school. All these kinds of things, and this is what was happening with Jacob and and his cousins. There was this tit for tat throughout there the, the the years that he had been there, uh, to the envy of his cousins and. Obviously, they're looking at Jacob breeding Laban's sheep and goat and seeing that this deal that he waged with, with Laban, speckled, spotted, mottled animals, is like increasing Jacob's wealth, dwindling Laban's wealth. And so they're seeing this and they're envious about it. So much so that they go to their dad and saying, all this ours is ending up being his and you got to do something about it. Here's a second thing that we see that's, that's kind of providential. It's Laban's attitude. Verse 2, um, Jacob, I don't know what why it took him 20 years to come to this epiphany, but he says that Laban didn't regard him with favor. It's like, duh. Like, from, from the, the morning he woke up married to the woman that he didn't intend to marry, he should have known that there was deceit just wrapped up in his father in law and he should have taken every moment that he could to steer away from him or, or at best, run, right? So Jacob realizes that um, Laban's attitude has had the best of him, and he does no longer regard him with favor. I think it's fair to say Laban never regarded Jacob with favor. He was just using him. He was using him, and especially when he recognized that this young man was blessed of God. Here's a third reason, and I've said this uh, at least a couple times in this series, but it's the attitude of Jacob's wives. Um, those men of you in here in the room, um, think of those the, the moments that are leading up to you bringing an issue to your wife. It's an issue of finances or a relational issue, something going on with the kids, something going on with work, and you know it's going to be contentious. You know it's sensitive, and you can just feel like the the, the discussion that you're having with your wife unraveling right before you. And You're like, that's what Jacob is feeling as he's bringing this situation, uh, just the whole situation, to his wife. Actually, Jacob doesn't have just wife. wife. He has wives. Obviously, two of those are concubines. Uh, but he has to bring this contentious issue about their dad to Rachel and, and Leah. And I can only imagine... Um, What he has to go through. In fact, let's let's look at these verses. Verse four. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Uh, Then let's skip down to verse 13. All right, so he explains the, the whole ordeal about the, the, the ways, the spotted, speckled animals and how God blessed that, how God showed it to him beforehand and he just did what God told him to do. And then he explains how God comes to him as an angel and, and reveals all of this stuff to him in a dream. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go, to this, uh, go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you to do, go do. And so I can't say this is a miracle, but of course these women have been competing with each other to to have... You know, sons for Jacob, but also they've compete. They've been competing with each other for Jacob's affection for twenty years, and to have them agree on anything at this point is just shy of a miracle. But that's exactly what happened. They see their situation. They see that God is blessing their fa- blessing their husband to to gain wealth. He's just draining uh, their father's stuff, and they they. They're reflecting on the past years that they've spent married to Jacob, but also living with him under their father's roof. And they've come to the—I mean, just the the, the realization—it's not like we're daughters anymore. We're basically foreigners in our own house. And with that, they tell Jacob in verse sixteen, "Hey, whatever God has told you to do." go ahead and do. And so with that, we come to the next scene. Jacob decides he's going to get out of Dodge, right? He's, he's, he's going to uh, execute a clandestine departure. He's going to sneak away. We, we don't know how long it took Jacob to pack his stuff up and corral this, you know, all this wealth and people and stuff that he had, but we are told that he does it kind of um, um, clandestinely. I mean, he, he, he sneaks away um, when there was an opportune moment for him to do so. And there's a couple things that we'll note uh, in, in this portion of our text. Here's the first thing. He left during the busiest time. So he thought this through. He's like, what's the best way for me to get away so Laban doesn't know and I can just like get rid of this man? And he left during a, a time in the spring where the herdsmen would have been shearing sheep, shearing sheep. That's just like giving the giving the lambs a haircut, giving the sheep a haircut. And they're going to take that wool and. Use it for themselves, trade it, or sell it for for money, for income. Verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padanaran and uh, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Verse 19. Laban had gone to shear sheep. So this is the most opportune time. Padanaran uh, would have been. Uh, of course, Jacob was going to uh, the hill country of Gilead, which would have been about 300 miles away. And so, how, I mean, how do you sneak away and get that far away to put some distance between you and your your, your your crazy father-in-law? I mean, you do it stealthily. And so he picked the exact right time to do that. And humanly speaking, that was the only way, that was the only reason that Jacob was able to get and travel as far as he did. Here's a second thing that we see uh, that's worth noting. This would have been a major un, uh, undertaking. Um, the the Bible doesn't give us the exact um, idea of of all that Jacob had in terms of his wealth at that point. The the stuff that he had, but it it sort of lays it out that he has enough that um, I mean he would have had to plan this, and and it, it it wouldn't have been an easy thing to do. Many of you have. Uh, Have traveled. This is an army culture, so y'all are used to packing up, or at least the government packing up for you and moving your stuff from one point to another. Uh, Statistically, this is what we do in the DC area. We come to an area, uh, we learn how to do life there, and then we figure out how to, you know, where it would best be, uh, where where we could best live life and get to work and uh, those areas that we might best want to live in after we've lived here for a couple of years. In fact, this is what happens in, in, uh, in my neighborhood. Uh, young couples come, or singles come, they get married, they have a kid, and they realize, you know what? We want a little bit more yard than this townhouse affords. Or you want more yard, right? You want, you want more house for your dollar, and you decide to live a little bit further out. Going way down to Woodbridge, or, or Lord, I shouldn't even say way down to Woodbridge, right? It's just, <laughs> it's just 20 minutes away. In, in North Carolina, that would be like, all right, let's get in our car and let's go to Walmart, 20 minutes away, right? But that's really what we do. And for those of you in the military culture, of course, uh, again, you're used to every two or three years sort of packing up, and, and then you might have a little bit of burden. All right, I got to, all of a sudden, I don't want the packers to move. I'm going to put it in my car. I'm going to put the kids in the car. You know, we're going to cram the minivan or the SUV up and, and go to wherever we're going. We're no strangers to moving, but what Jacob is doing would have been like moving times 10,000 from, from what we. Are used to because Jacob had, I mean, he had a caravan going. He had wives and he had children. He had servants and livestock and herds. Like that's like Dorothy going to Oz. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh mine. It would have been a massive undertaking. Here's the third thing. We learned a little bit, a little bit about the, the character of Rachel here. We learned that she's cunning. We learned that she's resourceful. But I think probably the best word that fits Rachel in in this chapter is she's deceitful. She's at least as deceitful as her husband, perhaps a little bit surpassing him closer to what we see in her father Laban, because in verse 19, it says that Rachel stole her father's household gods. Laban's away, he's shearing sheep, and not just Jacob planned to get away with all his stuff to to leave his crazy father-in-law, but his own daughter decides to steal something, obviously, that we find out in, in verse 30, that's kind of special to Laban. You know, his, his, his witchcraft, his idols, they're special to him. And his daughter, who would have known about them because she grew up with them, decides to take them. These idols are called teraphim in the Hebrew. And they would have been small two to three inch figurines used in divination or to bring good luck. Uh, Laban was using them to, to, to supposedly bring himself prosperity. We have no idea why Rachel, um, why Rachel took those. The Bible, the Bible doesn't give us detail into her life, so we can only um, we can only um, guess what was going on. Perhaps she wanted to guarantee a little bit more fertility. Back in chapter thirty, she has she has Joseph, and no sooner that she push him out of her womb, uh, she says, "Lord, would you bless me with another?" And of course, of course, she will have another child. A couple chapters later, she's going to have. Benjamin, uh, jo- uh, Jacob's 12th son. But if it's not just the guarantee of, of fertility, perhaps Rachel had learned through the years of growing up with her, her father this idea of superstition and of divination, that it, it brought good luck or that it protected her. And she was trying to ensure not only her own protection but the protection of her husband and this whole caravan as they're getting ready to leave and go uh, to Canaan. I mean, we really don't know. But what we do learn from her character is is that she's cunning, she's resourceful, but more importantly, Rachel's got some deceit in her. Here's the last thing I think that we can learn from from this clandestine departure, is that surely God told Jacob to leave, but the way that he left was, was dishonorable. God didn't tell Jacob exactly how to leave, but if you're supposed to be a man of character, leaving You know, as stealthily as he did um, when Jacob wasn't even uh, around, was not necessarily on the up and up. Right. And but here's here's Jacob's dilemma. What do you do when your father in law is a blockhead? I mean, that's I mean, that's another sermon for another day. I mean, that's relational dynamics there that Jacob obviously would have had to to work through. But his his issue is simply this. Uh, Do I do I obey God? Or do I remain a slave to Laban? And of course, he chose obeying God and leaving. But I think the fact of the matter is uh, there was a more honorable way for Jacob to leave Haran and actually do what God had told him to do other than conniving, planning uh, and, and leaving as he did. So here's the picture that we have so far. Jacob, I mean, Jacob is God has blessed him. But I think the thing that we see surfacing from his character is that this dude is still less than perfect he 's got he 's still a difficult work in progress, and I think that's the the we're supposed to get from that the the character of of what it's like to progress spiritually i think the the, the hope for all of us is that in our lives, whether you're a Christian or not that you see some maturation of of your character, particularly if you're a Christian, then the Bible would tell you. Christian mentors would tell you that you you sort of want to have an upward kind of a a maturation process going on. But I think the truth is that in all of our lives, and we see this in Jacob's life, is that our Christian journey from point A to to Z that God has you on is, is a path that's meandering. It goes up hills and down in the valleys. There's curves that God takes you around that are unsuspecting. We have moments where we're growing and uh, enjoying great fellowship with the Lord. And then we have seasons where life is dry. And and I, I would say many of us have seasons where we're just outright disobedient to God. And I think in that, God grows you. And so th- that's the lesson that we learn about, about Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver. He's yet to master some of the besetting sins to which he himself uh, was always prone. And could we say that not of, our, of ourselves as well? could we not say that we are still trying to master some of the besetting sins that uh, have been in our lives as long as we've known it and and here we see Jacob is using really the same sort of deception that he's always used before and if Jacob were here right before us here's the question that we would ask him I mean jacob why are you why are you conspiring and plotting? hasn't God said that um, that you're that, that the the older would serve the younger? Hasn't God said that you would be the, the, the firstborn, the inheritor of the promises of Abraham, that the nations would be blessed through you? Have I mean, have you not yet believed all that God has said about you such that you would agree with him and discern which way that he would have you to go? But, I mean, do we do that same thing? Jacob has really received that warrant, but yet we see him sneaking away Cowardly, like a fugitive on the run. And here's the good news in this. Despite the lack of integrity that we see in Jacob's life, perhaps despite the lack of integrity that you might see in your own life or that people in your, in your family are pointing out in regards to you, and of course in Jacob, we see this over and over and over again. God is faithful. God is faithful. You just have to stick it out. And that brings us to our next thing the chase and the conflict. All right, so take a deep breath. This is the longest stretch of this text, and I'm going to start reading in verse 22, and I'm not going to take a breath until verse 42. So look down at your Bibles and read along with me. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, "'What have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell?' Now you've done foolishly. It's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob, verse 31, answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. And the presence of our kinsmen point out, what I have that's yours, and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Verse, <clears throat> verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and in the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Laban said to Laban, Jacob said to Laban, What's my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all of my goods. What have you found of all your household, good, household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I 've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and i 've not eaten the rams of your flock, your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself from my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night and my sleeps uh, my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years, I have been in your house i 've served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years. For your flock, and you've changed my wages ten times. Verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have set me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. All right, exhale. A lot of words, huh? Here's, here's what's important here. So three days later, Laban learns that uh, Jacob and his caravan have departed, and he pursues hotly. All right. He gets his posse of his sons and uh, some some herdsmen servants. And he catches up seven days later. And um, what we find is, I think it would be fair to say that Laban was so mad after he found out that Jacob had left, that this this caravan, this pursuit of Jacob is intently so that he could do harm to him. I don't know if he would have killed him. He does say that, don't you know, I could have harmed you. But I do know that he had ill intent in regards to Jacob, uh, probably not his, his daughters and, and the kids, but he was going to do something probably foolish. But here's, here's the grace of God here. The, the, the angel of God shows up to, to Laban and, and simply tells him, all right, Laban, shut up. Don't, don't open your mouth. But that's not enough. I mean, the, the, the God of Jacob is not necessarily the God of Laban. And, and and Laban probably took it to to account but he didn't necessarily shut up and so he he catches up to to Jacob and they have this this face to face um like heated conversation of course uh Laban is is berating Jacob for taking his 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 he calls it sons and daughters but basically, basically his his daughters and all of his grandchildren uh but Really, we find out what's in Laban's heart by these next words that come out, and, and I think it's verse thirty. he says, "Why did you steal my gods?" We brought out that last week there's there's this uh, this theme, this undercurrent of, of superstition and this soft rebuke of this idol worship that uh, that we see in our particular text. and so I, I think the the, the, the to make a long story short, uh, what we see here. Uh, not to belittle the the false gods and the superstition here is we see just an omnipotent God making very little the 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 false gods of Laban. But more than that, I think we should attribute that this victory, if if you call it a victory, not to Jacob or to his daughter do- or, or to his wives, but to the Lord Himself. The Lord is proving, you know, in this story that He is absolutely. Lord of all. There's no one greater. There's no one stronger. There's no one more omnipotent than Him. To the point that in in this next scene, verse thirty-three through thirty-five, we have the the hilarity of of Jacob looking uh, of Laban looking for his gods to find that Rachel has not only stolen them, but she sat on them under the guise of of being under her menstrual cycle. And so, basically, Laban has nothing to say. I mean, he 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 comes with these these specific words. And he says, don't you know the, the kids, the, the, the children of my children, the, the flocks are my flocks, uh, all that you see is mine, but the, the move of God has left him absolutely speechless. And that moves us into uh, our last, last part of this text here, a covenant of peace. And so Jacob really senses himself, Laban senses himself at a disadvantage, and he has nothing else that he could say. Look at verse 43. And he sues for, not necessarily sues, he asks Jacob for a covenant of peace. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness, both you and me, So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it uh, -er Jagarhassah, okay, he called it that name. But Jacob called it Galeed. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galeed and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. This is a significant moment in our text. It's significant in that the relationship between Jacob and Laban changes in this moment. Jacob, who has been the servant for all these twenty years, becomes the superior. And I think the words that um, the words that reveal that to us again are the what we see in verse forty-three. Laban said. The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? I mean, the uncle is crying uncle, right? I mean, he's he's in a sense surrendering, not necessarily to Jacob and anything that Jacob is presenting, he's surrendering to the God of Jacob. There's nothing that I can do to undo the blessing of God and to move and to remove the hand of God from you. And so let's Let's have some sort of peace between us. And so here's what they do. They pledge their mutual respect to each other. Actually, this is not a respect at all. They're going to have their servants create two, two heaps of witnesses. Uh, Laban will take and pile up a bunch of rocks. Jacob will take one singular rock representing the, you know, the God of, of his father, Yahweh, as a, a pillar. And they have a covenant meal, and they reconcile and that really is the, the, the end of this, of this story, a story that kind of starts turbulent in verse 31, Jacob, Laban pursuing uh, his son-in-law and his family, and all of a sudden just, it all comes to a halt, and there's, there's peace there. They spend the night there. They wake up the next morning. Laban kisses his daughters and his grandchildren. He goes back to Haran with his posse. Uh, Jacob will take his caravan, leave Mesopotamia, and head back to Canaan. And so a few lessons of faith and grace and then we'll be done. Here's the first one, and I've said this before, uh, and this, of course, has come up um, as a mega theme in the Bible, and we particularly see it in Jacob's life. And it's the lesson of providence, God's providence. A simple definition would be God's sovereign control and direction of events in the world. The Westminster Confession of Faith has a a, a more technical uh, conversation conversation about this idea of providence, and it says that uh, God has not abandoned the world that he created. God didn't, didn't create the world, spin it up, and then just dismiss himself, but rather he works within creation to manage all things according to the immutable counsel of his own will. Someone said it like this, the God who rules the world sometimes hides himself, and that's really that, the aspect of providence that I want to bring out for, for us. There's a lot. I mean, we could spend 10 weeks talking about providence, but sometimes here's here's how we approach our lives and even our lives in God. Sometimes we we have the perspective that um, that it just we feel like God's not there. That 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 he's in the backdrop somewhere, but the things that we're doing and life that we're living, uh, it, it would be the same, perhaps even if God we're not there, and, and a lot of times, just like our non-Christian secular friends, we fall into the trap of believing that miracles don't happen, that our prayers have no effect, that God isn't actually intervening in our lives, and the things that are happening are just the consequences of the things that we've done, but we do that to our detriment. I think this text is helpful because we see in the events of Jacob's life uh, really evidence for the providence of God in our own. Just think about Jacob. He He's born to a, a prophetic birth that the older will serve the younger. He has this interaction, kind of a, you know, tentious interaction with his older brother and connives him, deceives him into giving up his birthright. He has a mom, Rebecca, that um, that deceives her own husband to make sure that her son is is the one that's uh, not necessarily the firstborn, but get, is, is given the right to be the firstborn. He has a dad, Isaac, that's going to disobey God and try to make it so that Esau, his favorite son, uh, is the one that receives the promise and not Jacob himself. And then we have these twenty crazy years that that Jacob spends with uh, with his uncle and his father-in-law. And then, and from that, I, here's what we take: sin is sin, right? And sin always has consequences. But what we see is that God is greater than our sin. I mean, that really is the takeaway. It, perhaps it's not uh, a big takeaway for you, but, but that is the takeaway from Jacob, that sin is sin, it has its consequences, but God is greater than our sin. I think that's the point for us. And God is determining to accomplish his will and his purposes, sometimes in spite of our sin and disobedience, sometimes in spite of of us. I think the providence of God does not uh, relieve us of responsibility. You still have a responsibility as a Christian to make wise judgments, to be prudent. God works through means. He works through you being obedient, to you having integrity, to you working hard, to your faithfulness, to your belief in his promises, But on the other hand, recognizing the providence of God does relieve a lot of the anxiety of life. You're not just trying to nug it out prayerfully. You're you're trusting that somewhere in the creation of of our lives today that God is in it, and he's orchestrating something that you can't quite yet see yet. Here's what Jesus says. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? And so, rather than being a cause for self indulgence, one commentator says, compromise, rebellion, or any other sin, the reality of God's providence, or even those things that we can't quite discern, is actually a sure ground for trust and a spur to your own faithfulness. So, God's providence, here's a second lesson, uh, lesson of faith and grace it's God's protection. Jacob was in some trouble here at the beginning of our text, and I mean, hopefully you can see this, that God was protecting him. God had been protecting him probably all of his life, particularly during this tenuous time that he was under, uh, under Laban's care. Jacob's security, we should say, wasn't because of any worthiness in, in himself. He was protected because of God's covenant loyalty. God had made a covenant with his forefathers and extended to Jacob, and Jacob was living uh, that covenant life. Despite his conniving, this, despite his self-seeking ways, despite all those things that Jacob might have done that you know would have undone God's blessing and, and promise in his life, God was true to the promise. God kept that promise. And and really, the 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 same protection that we see Jacob having in this text is the same protection that God gives you as a believer. Let me ask you this: I um, mean have you ever numbered the hairs on your head? Can you prescribe the day of your of your birth of the day that you come to faith of the day that you're going to die? And the answer for all of us is no, but guess what God has God has planned all those days, and there's really nothing that you can do about it. Someone once said, it's like like a grandma saying, uh, God cares for you better than you can care for yourself. And I look back on my life and say, that's absolutely the case. And so if you can receive this, here's the truth. Nothing happens to you apart from the sovereign purpose of God. Nothing happens by chance or by accident. And I think that's an important that's an important lesson to remember. And that's not hyperbole. That's actually what the Bible says about you if you're in Christ. Here's the third and final uh, thing I think we can pull from our text it's God's peace. And so, as I said last week, this, this passage ends with a covenant of peace being made. And so, Laban and, and Jacob, they're going to uh, uh, erect some signs and seals. Uh, a pillar is going to be established. A heap of witness is set up. And then they're going to share a covenant meal together. Uh, a really volatile situation between Jacob and Laban, which very well could have ended up in tribes of the same family going against each other and someone dying, you know, a fitful death, suddenly ends and there's peace, there's reconciliation. But the the reason why the the violence stopped, why, why Laban was just cut off right there in the motion of, of cutting Jacob down was because of covenant. It's, it's, it's because of uh, a covenant that preceded them and that was going to go before them. And I think that's uh, no different than what we see redemptively that happens between you and the Lord if you're in Christ. The Bible records over and over in the history of redemption covenants, these binding agreements between uh, between man and man, between kings and their subjects, but more uh, more appropriate for our case between God and man. And we see them all throughout the Bible, starting with Noah, going all the way through David, through the you know, the Israelites' covenant with, with God, and even the New Covenant ratified by Jesus and and His blood. That we see God holding true to his promise, to, to love us despite us, to be our God as he welcomes us to be his people. And this covenant is one that ushers in peace. And it's through these teachings that God is bringing uh, a covenant of peace our way as well. And that really is the picture the Bible is painting for you, that Jesus is your covenant. Perhaps better said, Jesus makes a way for you to be in covenant with God. And if it wasn't for Jesus, you would not be in covenant with him. The Bible says that we are at war with God. Romans 5 eight God loved us so much that he would die for those who he calls his enemies. And here's what God does. He incarnates the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. He brings him to this earth. He walks our road, lives our life, serves completely as a human, though divine, and he goes to a cross and he dies in our place for our sin. And through Jesus, God enacts a new covenant, a covenant of grace where God gives us what we don't deserve, and he ratifies it through the visible, physical body and blood of Jesus. And by that, we're reconciled and redeemed. We're made to be in covenant with God, people that don't deserve that covenant. And so as we conclude this morning, I mean, the, the appropriate thing for us to do is to recognize that when we, when we receive of the, the elements of, of bread and wine, what we're doing is we are reenacting the covenant. See, so A lot of times we, we err on the side, and I, and I do this often, almost every week, I err on the side of saying that when we receive of communion, what we're doing is we're remembering the body and blood of Jesus. And that's good news for us, for sinners like us. But there's actually more to the, the sacrament of the, of the Lord's Supper than just remembering as if there's this historical event and God doesn't want us to forget it. What we're learning here is, is communion is not, it's not just a, um, uh, a supernatural spiritual ritual. Laban and Jacob, they, they learned what they're doing from their forefathers and they're not, they're not entering just a tradition or a ritual. They are inviting God into their midst, and they're allowing him to bring peace and calm into their, their situation, uh, which they can't do themselves. And so when we come to communion ourselves, it's, yes, it is us identifying with the historical event, the good news of Jesus dying in our place, for our sin. But more than that, the, the, the blood and the wine representing Jesus' body are, I, the blood and the wine, the bread and the wine representing Jesus' blood and his body are means of grace to us. What's a means of grace? It's, it's those spiritual things that have efficacy for us. They actually help us to grow. Grow on the inside and then eventually grow on the outside. And so I want you to receive the, the elements like that today. As you pick it up, as you feel it, as you touch it, as you taste it, know that you're not performing a, a, a ritual, but that God is communicating to you. He's saying that just like Jacob and Laban reconciling themselves and me bringing a covenant of peace between two warring factions, that God has come and through Jesus, he served as uh, a calm and peace between two warring factions, between you and between a, a holy God. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's what we do, when we, and that's why communion is so so important for us. And then and, and remember and give thanks to God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the story of Jacob. Lord, I pray that... Um, We would see your providence in our lives. Lord, that that though sometimes you are hidden and we can't discern exactly what you're doing, God, give us faith to know that even if we can't see it, that you're there superintending over our lives to cause your purposes and your will to come to pass, Lord God. And as you say in Romans 8, you do that surely for your purpose but you do it for our joy and as someone once said joy is not always happiness we do pray that you give us joy god help us to see your work in our lives god we pray that you would uh just bring us to peace bring us to peace with our own selves and do that through jesus for if someone is here and uh they have yet to begin a, a life with christ i pray that uh these words today in the 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 timeless words of scripture would um, convince them of their sin, that they need a savior and that the way to God is through Jesus by believing and confessing his life and death and his resurrection. And so would you grant salvation today to those that that need it in this room? And Lord, we thank you. Thank you for peace. Thank you for these elements that you've given us to remember you, your body and your blood uh, born on the cross for us. And it's in that that we give praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.